Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. I will be your host today. My name is Tim Muirhead. Sitting with me is our co-host, Teresa Morrow. Happy New Year's, Teresa. Same to you, Tim. Excellent. As you may have seen on our Twitter and Facebook feeds, Renee, who is not with us today, and myself are going on a Tonebenders road trip to Austin, Texas soon. As a quick reminder for anyone in the Austin area, we are hosting a sound meetup on January 9th, 7 p.m. at the Austin Beer Garden and Brewery. It would be great to meet as many people in that area as possible, so if you are in town, please make it out. We did a meetup in Toronto this past fall, and it was a super fun night, so if you can make it, it would be great to see you on January 9th. The reason we're headed to Austin is because a lot of really interesting sound work is being done in that town, and one of the first people we wanted to talk to while we were there was Brad Engelking. Brad is an amazing sound super and mixer. You have heard his work on the fantastic films like Alita Battle Angel, The Machete Film, Sin City, and many more. But today we're going to be talking to Brad about his most recent experience as the supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer on the new Terrence Malick film, A Hidden Life. Sadly, some scheduling conflicts happened while Tonebenders will be in Austin, so we're slipping this interview in ahead of time. Welcome to the show, Brad. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So congratulations, A Hidden Life and yourself were just recently nominated for MPSC Golden Reel Award in the Best Feature Film Sound Effects and Foley category. That's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. Um, I think uh, no one is, is more shocked than I am. It's, it's an honor for sure. It's, it's a crazy category because the other films that you're nominated against are Avengers Endgame, the new Star Wars film, John Wick 3, 1917, Joker, Ford vs. Ferrari. These are all films with very obvious uses of showy sound effects and very large sound teams. A Hidden Life seems like it's almost from a different planet from those films, and the crew list on IMDb for A Hidden Life is quite small. It's yourself, two sound editors, a Foley crew, and an additional re-recording mixer. How, how are you able to compete with these other films with this? It's, uh, I mean, obviously it's a different film. The, the sound effects and the sound that we're trying to create on it are much more subtle and kind of a story-driven kind of thing, more so than, you know, big action set piece type stuff. So kind of the way this started was Terry was showing me some of the pictures in his office and, you know, he said, you know, I, I want you to do the show. And I said, you know, that's great. I'm really excited about it. I, it looks amazing. And he said, but the deal is, is I want you to do the show. Like, you can't have any editors, no Foley, no nothing. You have to do the entire show by yourself. Wow. And, you know, and, and knowing it was going to be a, you know, a longer running time and, and, you know, a complicated show, because even though, you know, it's not a lot of action, it's still a pretty complicated show anytime you're with Terry because, you know, a, you know, a duck is never a duck, right? It always has to be a little more complicated than that. So I honestly was kind of like, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea. I don't know that we could do that. And he said, well, let's take a walk. So we went and we took a walk and we kind of made this deal between us, which was I would always tell him the truth. And when I really asked for something and really, really needed something, he would get it for me and that he would back me up. And I, I think because of that, you know, that's why we were able to make the film that we made and we were able to do the job sound-wise that we did was because, you know, we had a very, a very close working relationship the entire time. But, you know, the ramifications of that were I was the dialogue editor, I was the sound effects editor, the sound designer, and the mixer. You know, when there, there were times when time was more of an issue when we were mixing, when I, you know, when I just said, hey, man, you know, I can't conform all night and mix all day. I just can't do that. Or I'm past the point in my career where I will do that. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, I was able to have uh, Robert Kello and David Forche help. And it was wonderful. It was like all of a sudden I had like a crew like for these two or three weeks at a time when they were helping. And, and that's really how it went. So, I mean, 
Yes, it was a very small crew. And and because of that, I think that even more so on this show than on some other shows I've worked on, I feel personally responsible for all the good and all the bad, you know? So it's, it's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot, there was a lot of, in a way it was more stressful, you know, because I didn't have a lot of the time, another sound person to bounce ideas off of, you know? What Tim was sort of alluding to in like a, an action heavy film, which you've done those yeah. as well, is that the places that look difficult are kind of evident. And right. I guess when you watch this film, like most of Terrence Malick's films, the vibe of them is they're obviously not action films and they're not even particularly dialogue-y films. So where's the heavy lifting in working on a film like this one as opposed to like Alita? Yeah, I, th- I think the difference heavy lifting-wise is that it's not, like you said, it's kind of not cut and dry. So, you know, I mean, there's only so many ways to play a gunshot and so many ways to play an explosion and a car you know, chase and that kind of stuff. And not that that's not hard, because it's extremely hard. And on this show, I think the hard part was really trying to to tell the story without using just the dialogue and to try and tell the story using sound in places where sometimes you would have music and trying to create to create something like that, to create something that that speaks to you even though the characters aren't speaking or that speaks to you even though the music's not telling you how to feel. And that's really challenging. And, you know, in addition to that, Part of what was great about all the time that we had was that oftentimes, you know, you'll get you'll get a picture change that's based on, well, we wanted to make this transition better or we wanted to just make this timing a little better. And with Terry, you know, part of the reason that we mix the show and then he cuts and then we mix the show and then he cuts is that he reacts to the sound and the picture editors are reacting to what I'm doing. Usually it's a one-way conversation, right? Like the picture department's telling you, you know, here it is. And this was a two-way conversation. So... I think that is kind of what makes it really cool, but also really difficult, right? Because there is a lot of changes that happen because, you know, Terry and the picture department and me, we're constantly reacting to each other. So it's not just a one-way conversation. So I think that in a lot of ways is what makes it really challenging and that, you know, we're trying to create all these emotions without without all the kind of the normal tool set or without, you know, going to the obvious places, if that makes sense. Do you want to talk a bit about how you start, especially... What I wonder is, what do things look like when you start working, and how do you break it down? Like, how do you structure it so that you can proceed? Right. And, uh, you know, the way I approached this one, and, you know, this is in conversation with, with Terry also, but my thought on this one was that, you know, actually there's probably more production dialogue in this one than there's been in quite a few of his movies. Mm-hmm. And what I had said to him was that I thought the dialogue was really good and really powerful, and the performances were really good and really powerful, so why don't we, like, approach it as a straight, film first. So let's not necessarily fill it in, but let's let's mix it like it was just a, you know, a standard film. And that way we kind of have a baseline from which to add and subtract. So that that's kind of the way we did it. I mean, there were things we knew from the outset that this is how this was going to play. And and actually most of those things that we thought ended up changing anyway, but you know, uh, that's kind of the way we did it. Is we started, you know, from a baseline of, okay, now we have a good sounding movie. Let's do our thing to it now. So the thing that I was really in awe of while watching it is that there is so much life happening off screen. Yeah. Like yeah. There, there are scenes, fairly long scenes of people in prison uh, courtyards just kind of walking around. And yet you feel the entire environment they're in where I feel like a lot of people's first instinct would to make it feel really isolated and uh, contained. Yeah where you guys went almost the opposite way. You feel the city outside those walls. 
which is almost more haunting because you they're stuck inside and there's all this life happening around them. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I, and, and honestly, I'll tell you that that's straight from Terry. I mean, he absolutely, you know, even in the countryside, when you're in the countryside, and it's really loud, actually. Very loud. And my initial reaction to that was, well, let's play this all very low. And, and you know, what Terry told me is, is well, you know, when you're there, when you're shooting, when we were shooting, it's so loud there. Because, you know, so much is happening and there's rivers and there's, you know, and it all reverberates around all these mountains. So, you know, he kept saying, you know, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up, bring it up. What making that stuff loud for us did was it gave us the opportunity to use that dynamic later on in the film to start zooming in. Another thing that I've learned working with Terry is that he uses the, the metaphor of the focus ring. So we, we're using sound to focus you in, not just to pictures, but to, into different emotions or into different kind of head spaces of characters. There's another scene where they're walking around the prison yard and the Scharfrichter, who's the executioner, is following Franz around. And in that particular scene, we actually brought a lot of that sound down and just played the Scharfrichter's footsteps. Because really, the guys walking around in the yard are ghosts, right? Like, they're not going to survive this. So the Scharfrichter is the one person who's still alive, really. So it gave us the opportunity to do stuff like that, where when the sound comes out, it draws you in even further to a whole nother level of it. It was super effective in doing that. I Because the sound really does have to drive a lot, because a lot of the film is being told through letters, which effectively end up being voiceover. Right. And the visuals are almost montages. And if you were having really hard cuts on all these edits, it would become jarring instead of, of course, this kind yeah. of wave going over you. Yeah. So there's a lot of pre-lapping and stuff like that. How, yeah, there's how a did, lot of flowy stuff, yeah. How did you arrive at that? Really, that's just kind of how it feels as you're doing it. I, you know, I don't really have a formula for how we did it. Sometimes we would um, pre-lap cuts and sometimes we would do it the other way where we would post-lap the cuts. You know, it was experimentation of, you know, what feels right. Sometimes we want it to be jarring on purpose. There, there's places where all of a sudden it goes from not loud to really loud, almost instantaneously. You know, it was really just a feeling. I, I, I wish I had a cool answer for like, oh, you know, whenever. <laughs> well, I think the answer might be that you had time to experiment and find that find the right answers. Yeah, well, you know, we did. But the problem is, is when, you know, a lot of times what happens, especially in those transitional places, is that's where conforms end up happening. Oh, yeah. It was almost recreate, not completely recreating it every time, but it, you know, every time it kind of advanced to another place because we had to rebuild some of those, tra- or regularly we're rebuilding those transitions. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of conforming that's happening in that show. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think what we're talking about is what you call the atmospheres, which are so foreground in this film that I wouldn't call them background sounds. Yeah. Um, the other thing about this film is all of his films are very long. You have a lot of time to stay in a in in one place and that's where the detail in keeping those backgrounds interesting and speaking to the story uh, yeah. have to come in so it just it strikes me as like there's no there's no like wallpapering of backgrounds or anything like that there's some there's a lot of craft that has to take place in ticking by the seconds of each scene where that's really those are really the main ele- sound elements and without in, in distracting it. you know like yeah. it's there sure. where you feel it but you don't always necessarily hear it specifically yeah. no i mean that's you know that's that's exactly what we were going for i mean we tried to create kind of a foreground a midground and a background okay. of every of every scene. And then in addition, kind of like the surround part of that, which is to, you know, to bring you into the scene as well. And there is a lot of stuff happening in the surrounds. Is when Um, you say with Malik, 
that a duck is never a duck, is that a place where that comes into play, where he's picking out things in the in the backgrounds that need to be correct or yeah, a certain there's, thing? So speaking of correct, I mean, yes, there are times when, you know, we would specifically say, you know, this is the sound we want right here, this specific type of bell. There's lots of bells in the movie. Um, and there's bells, different, yeah. yeah. There's different kinds of bells. Uh, you know, there's you have sheep bells and cow bells and church bells and different kinds of church bells. <laughs> and so, I mean, there were, there were definitely times when we were very specific about, you know, we want this specific bird call right here. And, you know, if, if anybody who's worked with Terry knows that Terry is very, very specific about birds. Like, <laughs> he knows birds really well. So if you put the wrong bird in there, he's going to call you out on it. You know, so it, there was a lot of effort put into making sure that all the ambiences are actually of that area. If it, if it wasn't recorded on set, that it was something that was recorded, you know, within 50 miles or so of where this was happening. Mm-hmm. So that the birds and the bugs and all that stuff are correct. Because, you know, for him, that's very important. And I think it adds a, a lot of authenticity to it, you know. I mean, the same thing with the, you know, Berlin obviously was a little easier because there's tons of Berlin recordings. But, um, you know, just making sure that that stuff was accurate was, was very important to him. You know, I think ambiences are, are always best when they're as specific as they could possibly be. Like if this tree on the right is shaking, there's a specific part of my track for that those leaves shaking. And if this leaf down here on the front left is shaking, there's a specific sound for that. The more specific you can be with all that stuff and the less washy, the more it draws you in. One of the coolest things that we'd had in the movie was that um, they recorded a whole bunch of wild sounds in the actual prison where they shot. And they recorded them way off mic on purpose. Mm-hmm. So I have all these chains that are recorded like 50 to 100 feet away. They actually hired a loop group and took them into the prison and locked them in cells and then recorded them like at 10 feet, 20 feet, 50 feet. Uh, and that stuff's throughout those entire pieces. I think it really adds something to it. Another thing that's really neat about the track on this film is that Terry doesn't shy away from letting you experience the horror as real. You know, the score on this movie is fabulous and not to take away from it at all, but it's really easy sometimes to use music to make those feelings. And to me, and I think to Terry also, it, you know, that whitewashes that feeling a little bit because you you feel that it's being given to you, right? It, it tells you, hey, you know, here's how you're, in case you didn't know, here's how you're supposed <laughs> to be feeling right now, right? But when you don't have that and when you play it super realistic, it adds a layer to that awfulness and horror that's different, that, that makes you feel it as real and makes you feel it as the emotion is created in a more natural way. And that's something we were always really trying hard to do was to not give you the emotions, but to create the emotions in an organic way. And it, it also leaves that up to the people watching. Like the one thing about sort of with Terrence Malick films in general, but with this one in particular, maybe it's because the political moment we're in, I had to think for myself, like how, like what do I really think about this? And it's not, yeah. it's not a movie that's like training you along like you're saying, you you have to think, which side of this do I fall on? And there is an ambiguity to it. I agree. I mean, to me, I, you know, having having lived with it for as long as I have, I, I don't I don't know that what Franz did necessarily is the most morally correct thing to do in, in mm-hmm. a way, mm-hmm. you know, because I, ha- I have small kids at home and to leave them destitute and without a father, <clears throat> you know, that's that's a difficult choice. And I, and I, I kind of like that the movie doesn't necessarily say like this is exactly it's more about his decision than it is a preachy about what you should or shouldn't do but mm. i like that it asks questions more you know as much as it you know tells the story yeah it leaves it leaves you to 
make up your mind or not make up your mind, but you have to live in that, the moments. And yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. the sound is like so instrumental and in like just putting you in that place and, and you have to experience it and do what you will with it. Yeah. A lot of that has to do with the way we played sound. I would say probably 70% of the sound or more is uh, production effects. So, you know, a lot of times what, you know, in cutting the dialogue, I was also cutting the effects. So mm -hmm. I would go in and, you know, oh, I don't have footsteps for this. Let me go find some from the other takes or whatever and try to use production effects in as many possible places. And, and, and you know, obviously that was a financial thing as well. You know, that was always the plan was to try and make it as close to realistic, as close to being there and not served to you in a way that I think a lot of movies are now you know and, and i and i don't mean that to to disparage other mixes or other sound because you know obviously i've done mostly that and it's really hard and and yeah. and 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 there's movies where that absolutely makes sense to do it that way but in this film the idea was to try and make it you know real so the first third of the movie maybe even half of the movie takes place in the mountains right and as you mentioned earlier it's a really dense quiet soundtrack if that makes sense like it's quite loud yeah. but it's uh it's it's dense like there's lots of sounds happening yeah so you just mentioned that a lot of that was production how did you come up with the ideas of how to fill that out with your other sounds making sure there's chickens going off making sure you know the dogs are barking in the right spots is it all just experimentation or I think a lot of it is experimentation. Um, you know, when we were mixing the show, you know, normally you spot the show, you cut the show, you mix the show, right? And this this was, all those were always happening at the same time, always. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, there were times, wow. you know, in some of the earlier mixes, they were almost spotting sessions in a way where Terry would say, oh, hey, I'm starting to feel, I'm starting to feel movie-ish. You know, we need to fill this in or I need a dog barking. So, you know, you create a, a folder, I guess, of all that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, oh, feels it feels empty. Well, let me go to my filler files here and we'll find the one that's the right one um part of its feel i mean there's you know there's certainly times where we got away from that you know on on specific close-ups and stuff like that but i think that you know he wanted a track that was really full more so than i even expected or than i had planned i think it's cool i mean i really like actually really get you know geek out on ambiences and stuff i really yeah. like that to me, after the dialogue, like that's the next building block of any good sounding soundtrack. I honestly wish that people played them more. I, I see so many films now where you, you're in this beautiful jungle and there's no jungle sounds or you're in this busy city and, you know, it, it just, to me, it's odd. Yeah. And yeah, like the atmosphere speak basically in yeah. the film, like nature is speaking. Yeah. You know, and I mean, it's it's cliche to say, but, you know, nature is a big part of the movie and the, and, and the locations are sort of another character in a way and you know it's always important to add character to that type of stuff and i was talking to a friend saying that we were going to be talking to you and uh just off the top of my head i kind of described your film as soundscape building as opposed to sound effects editing like you were you're building the world not just like adding bullet where bullet is shot kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I think that's true. And that's not yeah. something a lot of us get to do, so I'm very jealous. There's a lot of aspects. Of, I guess this happens, well, maybe mixing is happening all the way through, but um, yeah. but then, like, all of a sudden, all of the realistic sounds go away. Right. And, or some of the realistic sounds just go away, and it kind right. of closes you, like you are saying with the focus, it, like, closes you in 
And we tried to be, you know, I mean, when that happens, I know it. I mean, there's no there's no way to hide that, you know, all the sound disappeared. Right. But we tried to be as subtle as possible. And I think the most, you know, the most obvious examples of when we did that were, you know, when Franz is talking to um, the judge who sentences him to death. Mm -hmm. So it starts out really loud in there. and You can hear all the sound coming in through the windows. And by the end of it, we've focused ringed in on Franz. And then, you know, in Franz and Fanny's final meeting, uh, yes. it starts out pretty, pretty loud. And, and by the end of it, there's almost no sound at all. You know, those moments, you have to be careful with those because if you do it too many times, then it becomes a thing. And we didn't want it to really become like a, a mm. shtick of the film. But, yeah. you know, if you kind of set those dominoes up, you know, at some point you get to knock him down. And then that's kind of what we were, that's yeah. kind of what we were doing. It's very beautiful. So. That, that effect I find very, yeah. it's a moving thing for sure. So he comes to you and says, I want you to be a one-man show on this right. project. And it's three hours long. Right. And we have very little to no money. <laughs> Perfect. So are yeah. you, is, is this getting your uh, creative mind revving or are you crapping your pants? I think it's both. But I, th I think those, are, I think those work, I think those two things are, are tied together, right? I mean, my blood ran cold when it was, you know, well, I, ne I need you to do the whole thing and I don't want anyone else working on the movie. And I think for him, that's a way of control in a way that he feels comfortable. You know, he wants to know who's working on his film. And he he worries that there's some, you know, secret sound crew, like, hidden in a closet somewhere cutting the movie when he's not there. And um, and I understand that because the fact is that does happen a lot of times, right? I work with Robert Rodriguez a lot. And we always had this joke that, like, the real mix was happening somewhere in L.A. And we were just faking it here in Austin. <laughs> and then, like, and then we'd go to the premiere and be like, wow, man, we really nailed this one, you know? But yeah, no, it was it was scary for a minute. It was exciting because I was excited about the project from the beginning because I thought it was an important film. And, you know, we work on lots of cool films and lots of exciting films and, and stuff like that. But to work on something that's like actually culturally important, that doesn't happen all that often. So I was really excited by that opportunity. But uh, yeah, it was it was certainly scary. And I was really excited at the same time. Do you want to talk a bit about moving the film from Austin to Skywalker? Sure. You know, we'd been mixing and cutting at my home studio for almost a year, I guess. And we wanted to go to a bigger room for at least a bit and, you know, make sure that everything was playing the way we wanted it to. So we went to Skywalker and we're lucky enough to work with uh, Steven Yurata, who's an excellent, excellent mixer. And for me, that was like Christmas time because all of a sudden I had another mixer to like show my movie to that I've been working on all this time. And you know, is this working? What do you think of that? And and he was really just a wonderful partner to have on the show. You know, I think for him, it was kind of uh, a trial by fire kind of thing, because he didn't know really the dynamic of working with Terry or any of that kind of stuff. But he blended in perfectly and became part of the family quickly. And I think we were there for, I think we were there for like 12 days, something like that, as far as like actual mixing days. I think we had 12 mixing days. And, and actually, then I left the show to go work on Alita and then came back. And actually, for me, it was perfect because I had been in this kind of like college philosophy class for the last year and a half <laughs> and then switched over to Alita, which was, I, you know, which I, I knew exactly what I needed to be doing on that, you know. Um, I mean, it was hard. It was a very challenging film to work on, but I knew what my role was and exactly what I was supposed to do. And I had a dialogue editor and it was just, it was great. And then as soon as that was done, I was ready to go back to you know, kind of live in the in the Terry world again for a while. We, like I said, we were off and on for about three years, and I think we had essentially kind of three or four, two or three-week mixes during that period, and then he would take the mix, go back to the cutting room, and kind of react to the mix picture-wise, and then, you know, three or four months later, we'd, we'd pick it back up again. Just I'm just thinking the way you worked on it for so long, I was just wondering if uh, 
it was a situation of when it's done, it's done, or if you ended up, did you did have a final push at the end. I think that when you're making a film like this, where there's a lot of experimentation and there's a lot of, and the story's really good and the performances are really good, there's a lot of pressure to get it right. And, you know, Terry's in a position where he's not going to let it out until he feels like it's right. We wanted to play and we wanted to take the time to get it the way we wanted it to be. And, and that's that's the reason it took as long as it did. Well, we talked about how there weren't any really big sound effects moments, but there are a few moments with like pre-industrial machines, like the mill. Yeah. Were those actual functioning machines that you were able to use some production sound from? It's both. They're, they are actual functioning machines and they did record them. Uh, and then, you know, I basically kind of topped them with just little details and stuff to make them a little bigger and a little stronger. Um, and actually, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the movie that ended up being that way. When there were moments that there were soldiers or planes or stuff like that, or cars, we worked pretty hard to make sure that those were accurate. Like the, um, the bombings that happen are actually based on old BBC recordings from the BBC libraries from Berlin of Berlin being bombed. Oh, wow. You know, and they're real scratchy old, you know, sure. like probably wire recordings maybe. And then use that to kind of create toppers. So that's like the main element. And then there's toppers on top of that in an effort to try and make it as real as possible. And actually, you know, the sound of B-17 masked bombers is, is tough, right? Because there's not yeah. you, there, there's not a modern recording of 200 B-17s flying overhead. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a fair amount of that stuff happening, too. But we try to always use, if, if the production isn't, the main element playing that the, the production is playing and you have toppers on top of it that feel real with the track. Mm -hmm. I guess what I would add is that what made this hard, but what made it more satisfying was that, you know, I didn't necessarily have what I needed and I didn't necessarily have the help or the funds or in some cases the time, you know, we just dug and scratched and clawed our way to finishing it. You know, I, I think that it's really easy to get super excited about you know, the newest plug-in or this really trippy, crazy sound design or stuff like that. But what I always find powerful and strong is when you have something that's that's just really, really clean and really good and brings you into the movie rather than drawing attention to itself. Because subtlety was required. I had to create all of this stuff in a way that it all fit together. Like if I'd hired myself as a dialogue editor on this show and then gotten the work back, I would have fired myself, right? <laughs> But, but I knew kind of what I was going to do and I knew where things were going to fit and how the puzzle was going to go together. So I was able to kind of think ahead yeah. in a way that a lot of times you're not, where you're having to cover every single base. Yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of a cool way to work. It was kind of a guerrilla way of working. And I just, you know, it's not something I get to do very often. So it was, it was fun. Being in Austin, uh, like a smaller market, you say you don't work like this very often, but I imagine that has been the way you've worked on smaller budget sure. projects. on some stuff, yeah. And uh, I think that's an interesting point. We talk to a lot of top-level people who have the big budgets, who have the teams. Right, the production's already way. amazing before you even touch it. That kind <laughs> of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think most of the people who listen to our show are actually more in the other camp where they don't have the huge teams, but they are relied on. Right. We want it to sound like a million dollars, and here's our $7,000. Yeah, and I think it's underrated, like how, first of all, the variety of tasks that a single editor takes on. Well, you're, I was really you're lucky the flag for bearer for all of those one-person <laughs> shops. 
I was very lucky in that I came up uh, with Robert Rodriguez, and and his thing was always he wants everyone to learn everything, right? Mm. He wants he doesn't want one person to say, oh, that's not my job, it's that guy's job. He's like, no, just you know, fix it, learn it, do it, right? And really, kind of growing up outside of LA. That was the rule. You know, if I had said something like that, that would have been my last day on the show. For sure. You know, I, I was very fortunate that I, I learned from people that, that had that mindset as well and that that I worked for someone, you know, came up with someone who was like, if we don't know how to do it, we're going to figure it out. You know, we're going to find a way to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Creativity often comes from what you don't have, right? The resources that you don't have require creativity. And a lot of times you can come up with something new that way. I mean, you're not going to come up with something new doing it the same way you've always done it, right? Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. This has been a really great talk. Oh, well, thank, thank you, you very man. much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate y'all's uh, interest in the movie. Dumb Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 